Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. I have two introductions uh, before we get into, inshallah, the uh, subject. The first introduction, sort of my personal introduction to why uh, we're here, or why I think we're here, or at least why I'm here. Uh, and then an introduction to the subject at hand. So I can speak for myself and maybe postulate uh, why some of you are here, but I think that we are here because a lot of us are upset. A lot of us are confused. I think that collectively, Muslims have this post-traumatic stress disorder from a lot of things that we see, and, and we keep praying that it's gonna get better uh, but unfortunately, it gets worse. And I think we've reached a point where we can no longer hide from the fact that there is a major problem in the world. And many people assume that Islam or Muslims have something to do with that problem. So rather than just being at home, um, I kind of feel like uh, Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. Why did I leave my hole? I was fine. But one must make a stand at one point in one's life for the truth. So part of this upset feeling or this confusion is that there's these problems, but to be very honest, most of the responses to these problems have been just as weak. And that's part of what I wanted to address in the introduction. What I hope to accomplish, inshallah, today and over the next few sessions is to provide a framework from which we can respond to some of these problems, some of these issues. And that's the, what I'm trying to say in another, in another way of saying it, is that part of the responses, part of the problem of the responses is you see you know, some lunatic doing something in the name of Islam. They look horrendous. You know, they can barely speak English. They can barely speak Arabic. God knows where they're from. They're wearing masks. And then the response is, well, I don't believe in that. That's not Islam. Well, to be honest, that's not a good response. Because those people claim to be doing what they're doing according to some paradigm, according to some framework. Inshallah, we will, with Allah's blessing, demolish this framework. And we will show the fallacy of it. But that can only be done by establishing the correct framework. And our correct framework is based on three things. It's based on... The Qur'an is based on the traditions of the Prophet wasallam, the Sunnah, and based on the methodology of interpretation that we have inherited from the scholars before us. Because human civilization is a 
deposit and a reposit of those that have came before us in anything. So if somebody wanted you know, to, to build a structure, they're not going to reject you know, math and science and engineering and say, oh, I'm going to start from scratch. You're going to use what came in the past and build on it. That's human culture, human civilization. And our tradition is no different. We have a tradition, an interpretive tradition, in which the Muslims over the ages use their best abilities at each point in time to solve the problems that they were facing. So the Qur'an, the Sunnah being our source text and this methodology. I wanted to provide also some broad points <clears throat> about what I think this methodology entails. The first is we have to understand that there is a difference between religion and religiosity. What we say in Arabic, ad-deen wa tadayun. Religion, the science of religion, the study of religion is that. It's a study, it's a science. You can be a believer or you can be not a believer. I studied at Al-Azhar, they were really believers. I studied at Princeton, we weren't allowed to be believers. But it's the study of religion. I benefited from both. There's a study of religion. And that requires parameters, definitions, framework, paradigm. Uh, sometimes there's criticism, so on and so forth. Religiosity is something that's personal. It's our practice of our own faith to the best of our ability whenever we do it. A lot of the problems is that we have confounded the two together, that religion is really religiosity and vice versa. Today, these sessions, we're here to talk about religion, the study of religion. What you choose to do with this, that's religiosity. Not every single Muslim is asked to be a scholar of religion. But every single Muslim is asked from the source text to have a minimum level of religiosity, a minimum level of practice, of prayer, of fasting, of charity, of devotional acts, so on and so forth. But not all of us are required to be ulamat, to be scholars. And as a matter of fact, statistically, if we assume that maybe there was 100,000 companions, the mujtahids, the, 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 the independent jurists of the Sahaba, were 2% of the companions. This does not negate the companions all are of a special rank because they saw the Prophet ﷺ, they interacted with him, and they died with that faith. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, my companions are like the stars. Any one of them you follow, you will be guided. That's religiosity. But the study of religion, the companions went back to a few to ask them questions. So there's religion and there's religiosity. The other part of this paradigm is when we come to answer questions, what does Islam say about this? What does Islam say about that? To answer those questions, we have to do three things. There's going to be a lot of threes. It's kind of maybe because three is you know, something with the religion. But there's always threes, right? And then each threes has a three. But anyway, there's three things that we have to do when we answer this question. The first is we have to understand the source texts. What does the Qur'an say? What does the Sunnah say? And those are cataloged. The canon is there for us. So we have to understand the source text. And there are rules about how, we're not going to get into that, but there are rules about how you understand the source text. And then we have to understand our current moment. Because the Qur'an, we believe, and the Sunnah, we believe, comes from the absolute. What we say in Arabic, al-mutlaq. But the moment is partial. It's nisbi. So we have to understand the moment that we live in. What is the nature of statecraft? What is the nature of commerce? 
What is the nature of education? What is the nature of relations? So on and so forth. And then the third thing is how do we bring the source text into the moment? In other words, it's almost as if at each moment the Qur'an, the hadith is being revealed to us personally. To this us personally, individually, or us as a generation. How do we then bring the source text into the moment? And that's what you need. You need training for all of it, but that is not just training, that's a talent. You have to be able to do that. And we will see, you can start to begin to see where a lot of these problems come from. Because probably already somebody will be, oh brother, what is the Quran and Sunnah, what does it say? You have this like, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, there's the, the Quran and the Sunnah, but then there's the moment of how you apply. And we will get into how this is impact. But just on these three things, let me give you three simple examples. For example, Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, فَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنْ صَلَاتِهِمْ سَاهُونَ Allah says, woe to those who pray but are absent-minded with their prayer. Now if I came and said, well the Qur'an clearly says, وَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ Woe to those who pray, so we shouldn't pray. You would all say, well that's actually not what the verse says. And you would be correct. So that's a misunderstanding of the text. And a lot of these people are misunderstanding, as comical as it sounds, are misunderstanding things like that. About understanding the moment, for example, we no longer in our human society, we no longer, for the most part, have an economical system that is based on a gold standard of currency. And currency right now is what we call fiat currency. It's paper money, it's dictated by supply and demand, it has no intrinsic value other than it's a promissory note. But you can print more, it's not pegged to the gold standard, and America was the last country to undo this with, with Nixon. If you look at the classic books of fiqh, they're all of the discussions of commerce are assumed that the currency is either directly gold or silver, the dinar and the dirham, or at least backed by gold and silver. So then we want to take these rulings and apply it to our current case Everything is haram, 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 haram. But we're missing one important thing, which is that there is no gold and silver backed currency. So what do we do? So this is an example of understanding the moment. And then understanding or misunderstanding how you join the two, two examples that inshallah we'll get into much more uh, detail later, are issues like slavery or the khilafah where we have hadith about slavery, sections of legal manuals about slavery, but we do not have slavery anymore. So does that mean then that we are sinning by not taking slaves? Should I sell my kids into slavery? Should I go buy a slave at the slave market? Are we sinning that we no longer have a khilafah, like these people claim? Or is something else happening when the text meets reality? So we will talk about that. So again, those are the three things that we have to understand when we start to answer the question, what does Islam say about this? What does Islam say about that? Another introductory remark I would like to make is that if we do not do this, if we do not understand the text as it is, if we do not understand the interpretive methodology, if we do not understand the moment and how to apply the two, so on and so forth, we will create a parallel religion. And we will call it Islam, but it's not Islam. It's like when you look at yourself in a rusty mirror. 
It's not you, but it's like a messy or distorted image of you. And that's what these people have done. They have created a parallel religion. They have created a distorted image of the religion and they have called it Islam. And that's very, very important that we stay within this framework, within this paradigm. So I hope that as we progress, we'll be able to do a a few things. One, I hope that we will be able to find comfort in our personal predicaments, in our personal identities as Westerners, as Americans specifically, and as Muslims, and understand that there is prophetic guidance in these models, that there is no contradiction, there is no big sin that we've done, that we are American, that there is a way to coexist with these identities. So that's the first thing, is we hear that people that are watching, people that are attending, we need to get over this post-traumatic stress disorder that we have. We have to get over the confusion and over the upsetness that we have, this anger about what people have done for ourselves, for our own you know, sake of uh, peace and quiet. We also need to understand and appreciate, hopefully, inshallah, as we journey through this topic, that there are rights and there are wrongs. There is a right Islam and there is a wrong Islam, full stop. And we have to be able to say that. But this like wishy-washy, maybe I'm so, but he's Muslim, but maybe he's right, his beard is bigger than mine, so he must be right. That doesn't work. There is right and there is wrong. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, whoever lies about me on purpose, let them wait for their seat in the hellfire. And these people have lied about what the Prophet ﷺ said. When the companions asked his wife, they said, what was the Prophet's face like? Or the people after the companions, what was his face like? Was it strong like the sword? And she said it was radiant like the moon. So how can somebody who was described with this type of beauty be somebody that would condone killings and burnings and killing of the economy and and creating all of this havoc? So there are wrongs, even if they say they are Muslims, even if they say there is Islam. But for us to be able to respond to it, we need that framework. And then the third and last point I, I want to make in my general introduction, we specifically, hopefully what we can do in this series is provide unequivocal, direct responses to those issues that are the issues that are consuming the public square, the issues of the Khilafah, the issues of slavery, of apostasy, uh, so on and so forth. And I hope that as we, we journey, you will ask these questions. If not, we, we will bring them up when the time is right to provide very direct, clear-cut, unequivocal answers so that there is no confusion as to what these are. And uh, sorry, one last point, or two housekeeping things. One is, other than the, in, the two introductions, I'll get into the second one. This is meant to be interactive. So this is the only time where I'm going to talk and talk, and, and I, I ask not to be interrupted. But after this, please feel free to ask questions, write them down, raise your hands, whatever. And also, I want people to understand that this is not a class on seerah. This is not a class on the history of the Prophet ﷺ from you know, A to Z, but rather it's, it's based on a book that talks about a certain topic which we'll, we'll get into now. The second introduction is I want to introdu- introduce the material itself, the four prophetic models of coexistence from the guidance of the Prophet ﷺ. This is a book that has been authored a few years ago 
by one of my teachers, Dr. Ali Goma, who's the former Grand Mufti of Egypt. Uh, he also happens to be a trustee of the Coexist Foundation, of which I'm a part of. And I like to think that that interaction inspired him to write the book. I don't know. I never asked him. But he wrote the book nonetheless. And I found the book to be absolutely fascinating uh, and could not be more timely. And to, the book is very dense, and it's very academic and very scholarly. So there are a lot of things that are just maybe a little bit too um, minutia for us to discuss. But I'm using this as the basis for these discussions. So I'm going to offer you a little bit of his introduction about what the goals are. These are really his conclusions, but because the material is so sophisticated, I thought that I would introduce it, I would provide it as an introduction. So we know going into it what we're trying to accomplish. The first thing is that he addresses these four models. He talks about the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, in Mecca, before he was a prophet, commissioned, and after he was a prophet, he lived in Mecca for 13 years. So that's one model. The second model is when the Muslims, when he, when he asked the, his companions to go live, live in Abyssinia, in Ethiopia, as religious and political refugees under the Christian king in Najashi. That's a second model. And that's probably, for us, the most relevant model. The third model is the first part of the Medina state, when the prophet migrated, peace be upon him, to Medina and established the state and entered into a covenant with the other tribes, the Muslim tribes, the Jewish tribes, and the other people of, the, of Medina. And then the fourth model is the last part of the Medina and beyond his relations with other people throughout Arabia. And the issue about these four models is that when we look at the modern predicament, modern nation states, and us today, we need to be able to draw from all of those models. We will find things in all of those models and combinations that will help us find this coexistence that we desperately need, both individually and as a community. So, this is like raw material, and it is for us to look and examine what can we apply from it that helps. The other thing to take note of when we discuss these four models is that there are specific relations that the Prophet ﷺ had and the companions had that the ulama of the past kind of glossed over. Not because they didn't know about them, but because their predicament was different. Their predicament is not our predicament. You know, for example, think of somebody today who is 15, 16 years old or younger. For them, international travel is all of these like no liquids, you know, you gotta like basically go through the machine with a bathing suit because everything beeps. But for people that are older, we're like, man, the good old days, it was just so easy, right? For us today, Muslims are messed up and Islam is the cause of the problem. It's just like that's how it is. But there was a time up until, you know, maybe 100 or 200 years ago where that necessarily was not the case. Islam was a dominant force in the world. So the ulama at that time, they had a different perspective of a different paradigm and they, they, they did what they needed to do. So for us, we want to look at some of these obscure, glossed over models and relationships to give ourselves individually understanding and benefit uh, com as a community and as a larger diaspora, for example, models of coexistence. And we have to re remember that what regulates all of this 
is our code of law, our Sharia, and the Sharia itself is governed by the maxim or the, the great principles of the Sharia, maqasid al-Sharia, you know, preservation of life, of wealth, of, of family lineage, freedom of religion, these type of things. This is what governs how we do what we do. And if something violates that, then there is a problem in our understanding of the text, in our application of the text, but something has happened if we're violating that. So therefore, when we come with a model of coexistence, this is going to be a model that is based on prophetic guidance, that is compatible with our moral code, and compatible with the direct directives of the Sharia. The other point that I want to make about the book is that if we follow one or more of these models, this does not negate that we are adhering to the Sharia in its final manifestation as it was left to us by the Prophet And this is a, 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 a very fine point that I want everyone to pay attention to because this perhaps is the single most important conclusion of the entire book. We have in our interpretive methodology a concept, a concept of abrogation, nasr, that this text abrogated this text, that this verse abrogated this verse, so on and so forth. And sometimes people go nasr crazy, like everything is abrogated, and when you talk to these lunatics, you say, but Allah says in the Qur'an, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ You have your religion, I have my religion. فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَالْيُؤْمِنْ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَالْيَكْفُرْ Whoever wills, let them believe. Whoever wills does not let them believe. And oh, 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 but that's mansukh, that's abrogated, that's abrogated. And then you never win with these people. It's just like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You're never going to win with these people. But the concept of Nesq has parameters. So the Prophet ﷺ for us is an example completely. لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهَ وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرُ وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا Indeed, in the Messenger of Allah ﷺ is a good example. Allah doesn't say... One-fifth of the Prophet's life is a good example. This stage of the Prophet's life is a good example. Everything about him, وسلم, is our example. For those who have their eyes toward the hereafter, knowing that this is a transit, and who mention God often. So if you don't want to hear about you're going to die and you're going to face your maker, if you don't want to remember God, then he's not your example. Find another example. But if, that's, if you understand that you are morally responsible in this life, and there will be uh, something to answer for in the hereafter, then that's the example of how we live this life. And that's very important. There is no abrogation of the Prophet ﷺ. Everything about him, even before he was a prophet, there is, message, uh, there is an example for us. So if we follow one or, one or more of these models of coexistence, it doesn't negate the fact that we also are adhering to the Sharia as its final manifestation. And this is why some of the ulama or some of the uh, jurists like Az-Zarakshi, Al-Siyuti, Abu Muslim Al-Asfahani and of the last century Abdullah bin Sadiq Al-Ghumari who died in 1993 in Tangiers they, they adopted a very specific concept of abrogation called Al-Nisa' which basically to make the, the, thing, the subject very easy to understand because it can get very very complicated. Each verse in the Qur'an, 
each ruling of the Sharia is valid. When the circumstances of that ruling exist. And this is what we call in law the ratio legis, the reason, or in Arabic, al-illa, the reason behind the ruling. And each ruling has an object upon which the ruling falls. If that object were to be removed, that ruling does not cease to exist, it is suspended. Until that object returns, or maybe the object will never return, but it remains suspended. So the idea, for example, the easiest way to think of this, is when you wash for prayer, one of the things that you need to do is you need to wash your arm. This is the object of the ruling. The ruling is wudu. You have to clean these uh, limbs this many times. This is the parameters of the limbs from the fingertips to the elbow, so on and so forth. Now what happens, God forbid, if you lose your arm, then you have lost the object of the ruling. What happens to the ruling? Does the ruling, now this is, I know a philosophical thing, but this will have great real life implications for us. What happens to that ruling? Does it cease to exist? Has it gone in the, or is it there in the ether? It's suspended. So this concept of abrogation allows us to follow the Sharia when the circumstances for each ruling are applicable. And when they are not applicable, then we follow the other rulings of which the circumstances are applicable. And that way we negate nothing in the Sharia. We accept it all. But admit that some circumstances, some objects of rulings have ceased to exist, like slavery. So, for example, everything in the section of slavery, in all the books of fiqh, always demonstrate the ease by which somebody, if you were a slave owner, could free your slave. So for example, if I had a young slave that was a boy, and I called him my son out of my love for the slave or something like that. If that boy or that slave girl could physically uh, or literally be my child because the age is possible, then that speech that I would automatically cause that person to be free. There's no joke in the freeing of the slave. So when the, ulama, when, the, when the jurists look at all these rules of slavery, they're like, wait a second, the Sharia wants slavery to end. You know, all of these expiations in the Qur'an, you know, free a slave, free this slave, or so on and so forth. It's very easy to free a slave. So when international treaties happened to end slavery, the Muslim countries were of the first countries to sign those treaties, like Egypt and others. Not despite of the Sharia, but because of the ulama's understanding of the Sharia, that the Sharia calls for the abolishment of slavery. And now we have an opportunity to do it, and we will execute. What happens then to all of the rules of slavery? Do, they, do we just throw them away? Do we just wipe out these verses in the Qur'an, throw away the hadith about slavery? No, everything is suspended. Now we, we pray and we work hard that this will never happen again. And all these initiatives to end slavery and end trafficking, we should be the first people at these things. That inshallah, it will never come back. But this does not negate that those rulings, because they come from the divine. Because the rulings of the Sharia are the speech of the divine directed towards the creation with do this or don't do this. So that can never be erased in a theological sense. But they remain suspended. Now, maybe I lost some of you. 
that's okay. But I guarantee you that these people that are promoting hate and intolerance, they have never heard anything that I just said. And because it's so uh, confusing, well, brother, what does the Quran and the Sunnah say? That's their, it's like they're, like, a, like somebody tased them. Oh, what does the Quran and Sunnah say? Taze, oh, what does the Quran and Sunnah say? But this is how we understand the Quran and the Sunnah. And this is how we comply with the verse that we do not rule ourselves except with what God has revealed, His hukm. But that some rulings are suspended because their circumstances do not exist. And some rulings are not suspended because their circumstances exist. Now we live in this country free. Our rights are guaranteed, enshrined in the founding documents. You know, Benjamin Franklin, he said uh, that he built like a church-like place. And he said, this is a church for anyone to come and preach. And if the Mufti of Constantinople wants to come and preach about Mohammedanism, he's welcome. These are founding father stuff. You know, the old white men that we always talk about. But they, they had that attitude. It's a free country on paper and in law. No one's out to get us. We're, we've assembled here freely without having to worry about, you know, mukhabarat outside and, you know, maybe NSA is listening, but we're not saying anything wrong anymore. We're helping them, so they understand about this. So why have these verses about the sword and smite them? And why? You want to believe, I'll tell you about Islam. You don't want to believe, I'm happy, you're happy. God bless. What are our circumstances and what ruling comes down to the circumstances? So this idea of abrogation is very, very important. In this process, we want to revive, not reform Islam. And there's a very big difference. And there's a reason why Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, hujjatul Islam, the proof of Islam. I mean, what a title. The proof of Islam, why he called his book, Ihya Ulum al-Din, the revival of the religious sciences. Because we want to be revivers. The Prophet ﷺ said, as is narrated by Abu Dawood, on the beginning of each hundred years, Allah will send a reviver to the religion. Not a reformer, a reviver. What's the difference? The reviver wants to revive these detailed understandings of how we understand the text, how we apply it. How we can provide this correct framework based on the source texts, based on the Qur'an and the Sunnah, as you know, the brothers keep saying, but correctly. And not be embarrassed, and not be afraid that there might be something that I don't understand, because the text is the text, but there's a difference between the text and understanding the text. That's very important. There's a difference between what the Qur'an says, what this verse says, or what that hadith says, and how you understand that, and there's yet another difference of how you apply that. So we want to revive that. So reviving doesn't destroy what came before us, it builds on it. But these people have not just destroyed what came before it, but they want to destroy the Qur'an and the Sunnah itself. Because the difference between them and some you know, crazy, um, violent secularists, they are two sides to the same coin. They are from the same paradigm. But we want to revive that and preserve that, not to destroy it. But they will cause this to be destroyed. So this is important about reviving and reform. As we come uh, to, to look at these models, we will discuss a few concepts from Islamic law that in the past might have seem, seemed, you know, okay, well, we just 
kind of gloss over it, but now are very, very important. And he lists many, and I'm only going to go over a couple of them, and with this I'll conclude the second and final introduction. The first is the concept of the subtle moment. Al-lahza al-latifa, the subtle moment. What is the subtle moment? The subtle moment is I come to buy something or, or my father wants to sell me something. And say he wants to sell me a car. So he has a deed, right? And the car is in his name. And then he comes to sell it to me. Maybe I pay him money or he's generous enough not to ask me for money. And he sells it to me for a dollar. But then we're going to change this deed from his name to my name. At that subtle moment, at that moment, that subtle moment that my name is on the paper, not his, the ownership of that object of this car or this land or this house transfers from him and transfers to me. That's what the subtle moment is. And you're like, okay, well, what's the big deal? It's so, so abstract. I'll give you an example from the book or the section of slavery. Because to show how we can't throw this stuff away. How do we benefit from the subtle moment? The books, they say, okay, what if you go to the slave market and you buy a slave? You purchased him. So at that subtle moment, the ownership of that, because slavery is ownership. The ownership of that slave goes from that first slave owner now to you. I have the deed, I own the slave. When I get home, I realize that this slave is one of my relatives. Or maybe I was married and divorced or my previous wife died and this is the child. And I lost the child and some, you know, there's no Facebook, no Instagram. You know, I know those are sad concepts that we don't, there was life before that. So we don't know. And it turns out that this slave is part of my lineage. Now, no longer can this slave be my slave. So there's a defect in the contract. So does that mean that I return the slave? But the fuqaha say, but no, Islam, the sharia, wants to free slaves whenever possible. So we apply this concept of the subtle moment. At that subtle moment, the transaction between me and that person is correct, and at that same subtle moment, that person is freed. So we can't throw away these things. And this is just one out of many, many, many examples of how even though, and I remember when we were reading the canon of the hadith, and we were reading the hadith of slavery, I remember I'm like, you know, okay, who cares? I mean, it's so bad to say, but I was like, what's the big deal? And at that moment, the teacher was like, you see all of this? We have to re-examine all of this because there are treasures in these hadith. And this is one of those treasures, this concept of the subtle moment. Another uh, concept we spoke about a little bit, which is the, uh, the object of the ruling has vanished. So like you lost the arm in the wudu, so on and so forth. This is another concept which will come when we, to talk, when we talk about the khilafah. That the object of that ruling has vanished, so therefore the ruling is suspended. And then the last thing that I say in this introduction is the concept of what is necessary now. Wajib al-waqt. What are we supposed to do now? Because the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, one of the wisdoms that David has in the Psalms is that the believer knows his time and knows what he needs to do. So part of our wisdom is we need to know what we need to do now. So Maghrib is about, is about to leave and Aisha is about to come and I haven't prayed Maghrib. You know, what I need to do now is wash and pray Maghrib. What if there's not enough time for me to make wudu 
If I go to the bathroom and I make wudu, I will miss maghrib. Imam Malik says you can make tayammum on a stone. So you leave some mosques, they have a stone. And in the um, prayer room in Terminal 1 of Heathrow, or Terminal 2, one of them, when you walk into the masalla, I mean all the prayer rooms are really masallas because we're the only people that pray. But when you walk in, there's a huge stone. And there's a big sign saying, if you can't make wudu, you know you can make tayammum on the stone. So you need to know what you need to do now. Not what you need to do tomorrow or next year, but now. What is obligatory for the community now? What is obligatory for us now? This is a concept. This is how the ulama allowed this religion to survive all of these centuries. And that's something that's very important. And when we talk about the now, we have to remind ourselves that each ruling of the Sharia can change with four things. It can change with time. It can change with place. It can change with people, and it can change with circumstance. Not three, but four. Right? And this means that that's a lot of stuff happening. The time is different than that time. The place is different than that place. People are different. You know, we have in the, one of our sciences is the science of firasa. Firasa is I can look at your face and know everything about you. So even if a woman is covered... I look at her eyes and I look at her eyebrows and I look at her lips and I look at her cheeks and maybe I see her teeth and I know everything about how she looks physically. And there were people that were masters of that. But now, with all these chemicals and all these pollution and pharmacology and all, the humans themselves, we have changed. And all of this plastic this and Botox that, everything has changed. These books, are, we can't, you can't know anything about anyone now. You have to go ask the auntie, right? Because halas, you don't know. So people have changed. What we eat has changed. What we dress like has changed. Commerce has changed. The circumstances, the world is at peace, more or less. It's not a constant thing of we got to fight every year to we got to get money into the bank reserve to pay for the state. It's not like that. So we have to, when we understand the now, we have to understand that the rulings of the Sharia can change with these elements. And with that, inshallah, we'll begin our journey into the four prophetic models.